Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. Joining me today is Kim Iverson, here to discuss quite a few different things, but I've been looking forward to connecting with her uh, for the second time, actually, to discuss the the transition away from the Hill and the, and the corporate media structure. And, you know, I've been a big fan of Kim's work and her, and her discussions around COVID-19 and a lot of other challenging topics, and it's interesting to see how the corporate media has dealt with that. And having somebody who was on one of the corporate shows and that transition, it's an interesting kind of it's an example of what's going on in the controlled structure of the media. And we want to talk about a few other things and how this overlaps with the kind of chaotic world that we're in today. So thank you for joining me, Kim. How are you today? Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. It's been, I've been looking forward to connecting with you again. It's been a while. So let, let's start yeah, with sure. the, let's start with the, uh, the, the conversation of, of the Hill and the show that you were doing there and, and, you know, kind of just get into wherever you want to start on that and the transition from there. But I did want to talk just you know about, the, the moment of when that happened and because a lot of people would watch the show and myself included and it, you it clearly in a good way you stood out on that show as seemingly the one that was willing to challenge things that the corporate media usually doesn't and so it was always very fascinating to see like my mindset is like why are they allowing you to do that you know and, <laughs> and you see Robbie and the other guy pushing back all the time and so but it, to a degree you're going okay maybe they wanted some objectivity and then of course you, you why don't you tell us what happened and after um you know go ahead yeah. So uh, funny thing. So behind the scenes, I could tell you that they didn't really want uh, what I was saying on on the show. There was definitely pushback from behind the scenes. It wasn't just what you saw on air with Ryan and Robbie pushing back at me. And at times it was Ryan and Alyssa. We, we had a bunch of a rotating cast of hosts during the year that I was there. But um, no one agreed with me on any of it from on camera and really off camera. There were some behind the scenes off camera people who agreed, but they weren't in positions of management or positions of power. Mm -hmm. The people in the positions of power absolutely did not agree with me. Um, and they, many of them didn't want me around at all and were vocal in complaining about me being on the show, saying that I was dangerous for the show, that I was bad for the brand. Um, but ultimately the show wasn't getting the numbers. It was a show that has a lot of staff and mm. they need numbers in order to survive. That's how they pay their bills. And I was the only one who would bring in numbers. So they were kind of in this um, rock in a hard place spot where they didn't really want me there. They really didn't, but they did at the same time. They wanted me there because they wanted the numbers, but they also didn't want me there because they didn't like what I was saying. But I made sure off air when I would submit my radars, when I was about ready to talk about all the things I was going to, I cited my work very heavily. So when I would submit the document, I would link to all of these studies. I would cite everything. And that's all stuff that's not seen on air. Mm -hmm. They don't show the majority of that. Sometimes they would show screenshots on air of like the study or the headline of the news or whatnot. But usually none of that stuff was seen. But I put all of my, my I sourced all of my, I cited all my sources, most of it being scientific studies, in order to get management to never be able to say, you know, you lied or you don't know what you're talking about or, you know, if they gave me any pushback whatsoever. So I had to battle up every day. I had to really know my stuff. You know, I had to really have researched the studies, read the studies, understood the studies. And there was even one classic time on air that a lot of people remember when Ryan Grimm was pushing back at me on a particular study. It was Duke University. Um, I don't exactly remember how it, it was like seven, seven were unvaccinated. There was a bunch of students who got COVID, like 140 students got COVID. 
seven of them were unvaccinated out of the 140. And Ryan, put, I, I believe that's what it was. Don't, that's not the exact number, just, mm. but it was something along those lines. Ryan pushed back at me on air and he was saying, no, it was seven that were vaccinated. Everybody else was unvaccinated. That's what, that's what it was. And I was like, no, Ryan, they were all vaccinated. This was before people really were getting it that the vaccine wasn't stopping the spread. And I kept saying over and over, it's not stopping the spread. And here's, here's exactly another, another instance of, of showcasing the vaccine doesn't stop the spread. And he was pushing back on this. And on air, he actually said, uh, can we get the producers to look this up? Let's look at this study. And then they actually, uh, because I was a remote person, I don't get the teleprompter refreshed in real time. I have to actually physically refresh it myself. But we were live on air. And so they refreshed it on the studio side and they made Ryan read it <laughs> because wow. I couldn't read it. I couldn't see it. So they made him read it and they said, OK, you know, the producers have submitted the study and it was seven that were unvaccinated and 143 students were vaccinated who ended up getting. So he had to. And I was sitting there like, yeah, you know, right. so um, that is I, I always had to cite my work. I always had to source it. But the corporate media structure there, you know, the Hill wasn't super corporate at the time, but they still were, and they still had a brand to protect. Mm -hmm. And ultimately no one agreed with me, but I just made sure that I always submitted my work. So exactly. that was that we, right. That was like the behind the scenes of what was going on. So when people say, how did they let this happen? Like, why are they allowing this two dynamics there? First is I always sourced my work, but, but that was one part of it. The real reason why they let me the second part, I would say numbers, right? They needed numbers. But then there was the third and the real reason, which is that the, I just happened to catch them at a time where nobody was in charge. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> That's uh, the, the, the company had just been sold. So they brought me on when the original owner was there. He brought me on. He actually liked me. He didn't agree with me, but he liked me. And he cared more about numbers than anything. And he's a very free thinking, free, free speech type person. He sold it to... Uh, next star, which is the owner of News Nation, and they're the ones who mm -hmm. now own the Hill. But they were so busy trying to figure out how to run the Hill, absorbing the Hill as it as an entity in general, the newspaper side, the print side, the website side. They had so much on their plate with HR and converting all these employees that they weren't paying attention to rising. So it was like the kids were in charge, and yeah. you know it was like there was nobody there to say you can't, you know, we're not going to do this, and so. Ultimately, I just caught them in this period of transition and they just hadn't paid attention yet. And then finally, when they paid attention is when the whole scandal happened. And that was when literally two weeks earlier, they had brought new management from Nexstar into the Hill to start actually into Rising to start actually running Rising. And within the two weeks, I was gone. Huh. And that and then shortly after Katie Halper was gone as well, because she challenged um, the Israel uh, you know, she was saying she was criticizing Israel and they said, we don't want to we're not going to do that on this channel. And when I came on, they had got they secured this interview with Anthony Fauci. They then called me right. the night before on a Sunday. They, the interview was on a Monday. They called me on a Sunday night and they said, hey, because uh, I saw on the show rundown the night before that Fauci was being that that Fauci was going to be there. And I was and I said to them, whoa, Fauci. I mean, oh, I text the producers and then they gave me a call and said, yeah. But, you know, they asked who would be interviewing them, him, and uh, we didn't submit your name. And I was like, why wouldn't you submit my name? And they just said, well, you know, because you're, it, it would have been too early in the morning. You wouldn't have been <laughs> in the studio at that time. And I'm like, okay, but 
the time has now changed and I am in the studio. So I'm on that interview and you need to call them back and tell them or don't do the interview at all if they back out. And um, the next day they, they made a decision. They ran it up the chain. I don't know who was all in the decision. Uh, ultimately, I got a lot of different stories in the end on who was in the, just everybody kind of blamed each other, uh, like blamed somebody else. Cause they didn't want me to really know who had made the final decision. And um and ultimately, they decided not to even ask the Fauci team or, or notify them that I would be on the interview. They just instead to go forward with it the way it was set, which was that only Batya Ungar Sargon and Ravi Suave would be the ones interviewing him. And they just left my name out entirely. And so I said to them, look, you know, I, I joined this corporate media place, but I told my viewers that I would only be here so as long as I'm not censored. Um, and this is censoring me. You're, you're asking me to show up, do my radar, give you guys big numbers and then leave so that you guys can interview Fauci. And you're asking me to literally leave the studio that day so that you guys could go forward with an interview with Fauci on the very subject that I brought you guys all these numbers on to help pay the bills. I'm paying the bills this year. And this is how you guys basically thank me. And, um, yeah, that so they would they I begged them. It was like th- there was a, a delay between the time I found out and the time they actually interviewed him. Then there was another delay between the time they interviewed him and they aired it. During that whole time, I kept begging them just at first I said, guys, don't do this. Don't do this. I started texting everybody on staff there, all of and anybody who could possibly intervene. And I just said, you guys do not understand. If you do this, I cannot come back. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I cannot come back. It's not that I won't because I'm being a bitch or whatever. I can't. I told my audience, I promised them something and you would be putting me in a position where I have to break that promise and I'm not able to do that. So right. this is the deal. I, I cannot come back. And uh, they didn't believe me, I guess. And then they, they did the interview and I said, well, then at least just don't air it. Like just can't just get rid of it. Get rid of the interview. Don't do this. Um, ultimately, you know, they ultimately decided to air, you know, and then mm-hmm. it, it is what it is. And then, so I, I left, that was it that day. They tried to save it. They management called me, we had a zoom meeting. They tried to talk me into staying. And I just said, you guys have put me in a position where I can't, I, I mean, I said this to you guys for three hours all morning, mm-hmm. you know, and it fell on deaf ears. I'm, this is, it, it is what it is. You guys have forced me to leave. Very commendable. I mean, look, if you would have said nothing about this, nobody would even know this was happening. So that's something important to point out that, I mean, other than the messages you sent out and so on, the average person, you know, I just think that's the, it's, it shows integrity that you're willing to do that because you had something you believed in. There's very few people in corporate media or independent that would do that. So I just, you know, respect there. But what's interesting to me is that, you know, basically they had this one brief moment of like, I guess, objective conversation. And that was a problem for them. And it's just such an, I think the whole thing, is such an interesting, you know, it's, it shows you the example of what corporate media really is and what they're really trying to achieve. And even if there is some truth that gets out in different ways, like with your example, it's ultimately about controlling the flow of information for different reasons. And I think we all see that, you know, and it's just very frustrating. And I think overall, there's a few things to point out that one, obviously you were right. And everybody can now see that the facts have come out, the peer reviewed science. And, you know, despite the disputes, which we can get into in a minute about the consensus discussion. But on top of that, I think average people can see that Robbie and Ryan, I think Robbie specifically, I mix up their names here and there, went on to essentially start taking a little bit more of a tone like you after you got boxed yeah. out, which shows you that they were trying to emulate what you had without, you know, ultimately control. That's, those are all my opinions, by the way. But I just find that to be very, very telling. So anyway, any, any other comments you want to add on to the Hill part before we talk about the COVID yeah. narrative? And 
Yeah, you, you know, they definitely, Robbie definitely changed his mind for sure. They certainly don't tell, they didn't tell him what to say or, or to do that. Mm-hmm. Whether he did that, I, I, whether he did that because he really started seeing it for what it was or whether he did it because he's like, Kim's gone and, and here's an opportunity to get big numbers <laughs> for my radar. I don't know. I know they didn't tell him to do that. That's for sure. They really don't tell you what to say. And that's usually how it works in corporate media. And I've been in corporate media for a long time when I was in radio for many years. And then when I was with the Hill, which I was never an employee there, I was always a daily contractor. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was also like at any time we could sever our relationship. But usually the way it works is they don't hire people and tell people what to say. What they do is they hire people who will say the things they know they want to be said. So that's how they control it. The other way they control it is through content moderation. So they'll decide on what content you can and cannot cover. But that's really the extent of how far, in my experience, maybe it's more aggressive in other experiences. But in my experience, that's how they control narratives more than anything, is they just say, we're not covered. Like what they did with Katie Halper. Mm. For her, it was a censoring of a topic. They said, we're not covering this topic. Uh, For me, it was a personal censorship. They didn't want me to be interviewing Anthony Fauci. It wasn't about the subject. It was about the person that they were personally censoring. So it's interesting how they go, you know, but what was weird about the Fauci thing was like, we spent an entire year criticizing the guy. I wasn't the only one who criticized him, but there was a whole year of criticizing him. They ultimately chose to go with the interview because not because they were allowing a certain narrative. It wasn't even about the narrative. And this is the other important part about corporate media is it was about access. They wanted access to Mm -hmm. Fauci. They wanted repeated access to Fauci and they wanted access to other people whom Fauci maybe could give them access to, or the people, whoever connected them to Fauci, I'm not sure who set up that interview, but whoever, whoever it was who got them the access, they want to maintain a good relationship with that person to get access to other people. It's often about access and people Mm -hmm. don't want to piss off people that they bring on. You know, it's just like with my Dershowitz interview, I'm never going to get Dershowitz ever again, right? He's already (laughs) said on air, he's never coming back. I've lost my access. (laughs) But, it, but it's about that, you know, people want to go soft on interviews because they don't want to lose their access. Right. You ha- but the problem is, is that that has created an environment in media where everybody's, a, you know, they're soft and they're not willing to ask the tough questions because for what they've allowed. And I don't know when this morphing happened, but at some point journalism, and I would say it's probably since I, I feel like in the 80s, when I go back and I watch old news programs, those guys are hard on the interviewer. You know, mm-hmm. they're like, they're asking them legit. I, I was watching one with even in the early 2000s where, uh, you know, corporate media was going hard on Donald's Rums- Donald Rumsfeld. And it's like, you wouldn't see that today. So I don't know when the shift happened, but at some point there was a shift where access to these powerful people, the, the powerful people got to control whether or not you got access by saying, if you ask me questions I don't like, I'm never coming back. Mm-hmm. That's only allowed, and the media has to allow that to happen. They have to say, okay, we'll cater to that demand. If they say no, fine, then you won't have access here. And then if, if you act that way with everybody, no one will ever interview you. You'll never get interviewed. See, so that's the, the something shifted there. I, I agree. And see, that, that really shows me is the shift into news being a business as opposed to being a public service, right? Because right. then that, that's more about main, like the numbers is the main ultimate point as opposed to the truth regardless of what right. it gets from it, right? And so that's so interesting to me that the, the access journalism side of this, it's everywhere. You're right. And that's something that the average person doesn't actually consider because, you know, even me right there, my mind goes to 
not necessarily, which I do know happens to some degree. Allison Morrow has spoken on, you know, like the specific pressure on, on what you can and can't talk about as the individual as well. But to your point, you're right. They don't even really need that because you were a message, right? They they take the hint. Okay, well, we don't want to cross that line. And so they ultimately only bring in people that are willing to walk that line and the rest of them see that if I don't, you'll get pushed out and so on. Manufacturing right. consent. It's a classic concept, right. you know, that's important. But the access part right. of that's so telling. And uh, we, I, you know, we could talk about that real quick since you bring it up because I'm fascinated by how this works and how clearly he, I mean, it, so basically for those that don't know, you had an interview about two weeks ago, right? With Alan Dershowitz. Yeah, and two it was, or three weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it's just, it, there's a lot of stuff you guys talk about, but at the end you bring up a very valid question about Epstein. And, and, and of course, whether or not he doesn't agree with it, it's obviously a gigantic topic that's been swirled around even in corporate media. So the way he responds to this is so very telling. Um, do you want me to just play it or would you rather just talk about it? If you have, oh, if you have the clip, by all yeah, means. Why not? Let's just, I, it's, it's, I, that's why I laugh because it's the way he responds is so telling, even to people that might agree with his political, politically. It's it's yeah. it's unjustified the way he reacts and the basically says at the end, you know, that, well, I will never be coming back. And that's the access journalism part of it. So let's watch real quick. Letters is a better way of dealing with it. Right. Um, Mr. Dershowitz, while I have you here, I covered the Jeffrey Epstein case extensively and your name came up quite often. Right. Uh, Virginia Dufresne yep. actually accused you. Then I do have to point out, by the way, and I, you could tell me if this happened throughout the rest of the interview, but it's visibly he starts having sort of a reaction. An eye twitch. And, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I his think eye starts twitching. Bad. I, I think that happened just when this I yeah, when I brought I this too. topic up. Yeah. Yeah. Just watch again. I mean, that's really telling to me. Dealing with it. Right. Um, Mr. Uh, Dershowitz, while I have you here, I covered the Jeffrey Epstein case extensively and your name came up quite often. Uh, Virginia Dufresne yep. actually accused you, then later backtracked, say that she had made a mistake. There were others who had also accused you, but you had said that they couldn't properly identify you uh, or certain parts of you. And therefore, no, no, no. It, it wasn't identified. It's that um, one woman said she saw me walking up the stairs of Epstein's house uh, at a time uh, years before I had ever met Epstein. So that was just a complete made up story. And the other woman um, had written a series of letters to the New York Post claiming she had videotapes of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton uh, having sex together and um, have um, uh, many other people. And then, of course, she backed away from all of it. And um, uh, I've been completely, totally exonerated and vindicated. I never met any of these people. I never heard of them. Um, I defended Jeffrey Epstein the way I've defended hundreds of other people, some guilty, some innocent. But I did absolutely nothing wrong. I've been completely exonerated. I've been completely vindicated. I'm completely innocent. I've never touched anybody sexually since uh, the day I met my wife um, uh, during the relevant time period. And so Weird um, I'm, I, I did nothing wrong. And, uh, and nobody who's ever accused me has, has done it with any evidence or any credibility. So I'm, I'm happy to go on with my life. Let them go on with their lives. But uh, right. categorically, unequivocally, I did nothing wrong. So you do admit that you did receive a massage at his mansion? No. Uh, what happened is my wife got a massage uh, at his house. And then I had a neck and shoulder massage from a woman named Olga, who was like 40, 
five uh, years old, virtually everybody who went to any of Jeffrey Epstein's houses uh, got therapeutic massages. They were offered to, uh, to everybody, but I've never had a sexual massage or anything improper. I've never been touched by an underage person. So no, that's uh, not true at all. Um, uh, okay. What else? You have no. anything else you want to throw at me? Okay. Just a couple I, I more did things. absolutely nothing wrong. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, many of us suspect that uh, Jeffrey Epstein was an asset to Mossad and that uh, Ghislaine Maxwell was, uh, in fact, an agent of Mossad. This is, there's a lot totally of evidence that point to this direction and that no, they were, no they were operating a blackmail operation in yeah. order to get very powerful people, including people like yourself, uh, on, in precarious positions to where you could potentially work on behalf of the state of Israel or protect the well, state I work, of Israel. I've been in working some way. on the state of Israel. I've been working for the state of Israel since before you were born. Um, Jeffrey Epstein once visited me in Israel. He had never been there. He didn't know anybody in Israel. Um, he didn't work for the Mossad. The Mossad wouldn't hire him. And uh, I hope he had uh, videotapes of everybody because they would show I never did anything. Uh, improper. Uh, I have one other question. Uh, are you used to having people come on your show to talk about one subject and then sandbagging them on another subject without any warning? Because it's nice to know you do that and it will be make certain that I have nothing to hide. I'm happy to talk about any of this, but I'm Actually, used to um, we, more ethical journalism. No, we actually did notify the people who booked you onto the show that you would be asked about Epstein, and they assured us that you were aware no, of this. No, they never notified me about that, and you'd have to show me that email. Okay. Uh, one last question. Do you think that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself? No, uh, of course not. Uh, well, he didn't kill himself without the help of uh, some people. He did kill himself, but he killed himself with the help of uh, guards. He didn't do it by himself. He couldn't have done that, obviously, though. The um, videos were turned off and um, um, and the uh, um, uh, guards uh, turned their back and his cellmate left. So I think he killed himself, but he killed himself with the assistance of uh, some people in in law enforcement. <laughs> so there, you go on to make points after he leaves and so on, but you, you can add anything if you want. But it's a. Uh... Very, very yeah. interesting. Just a whole, so many different reasons. The, the the idea that one about the intelligence, which, by the way, I, I don't I mean, there's dispute about at parts of that. But I think it's very clearly defined that he was absolutely at least working with intelligence in two different places based on Acosta right. and plenty of others. Right. I mean, I think the evidence right. is there. Right. Or the fact yeah. that he'd never been to Israel, I think it can prove that's not true. You know, like it's very strange what he's well, saying. There. He said, I mean, Dershowitz said that he went to Israel, but with him. Well, but he said before that he had never been there. He didn't know anybody. And I, I'm pretty sure we can prove that's not right. true now. You know, it's very strange to me. But any, what are your thoughts yeah. on how that went? <laughs> yeah. And by the way, when he keeps going a little bit and uh, and then I say, you know, thanks for being here. He's like, oh, it's the last time. You know, I'm oh, not you know what? Let, me, let me finish it. You're right. That's the whole point. Let me finish that real quick. <laughs> OK. All right, Mr. Dershowitz, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, appreciate you. Well, it's here. the last time. It's the last time you'll have me on your show. Just uh, take advantage of it. <laughs> I think I, I think I got what I needed out of you. Thank you very much. Well, you got what you wanted. Thank you. I love your last statement there. <laughs> God, it's just crazy because it, that was the access journalist part, right? I mean, so that's him making that point, right? So everybody else watching knows, okay, well, that's a line I won't cross if I want to rise up in the ranks. You know, that's it's very telling. Right. Right. Yeah. If you want to interview Dershowitz, you know, you can't ask those things. But I did. And we did show that and I did send to his team. The text messages between my producer and his booking producer 
um, that, that I, we stated he, he's going to come on the show. Fine. I debated whether or not to even have him on. Quite honestly, they'd asked his team had asked numerous times to bring Dershowitz onto my show. And I kept saying, you know, I kept pushing, I just kept putting it off because, and, and I'd say to my producer, I'm only going to have him on if we're going to talk Epstein, but I got to really think about this. And finally, I just said, yeah, I want to bring him on. I want him to talk about this Trump indictment stuff since he was his attorney during the impeachment, of course. And, he, you know, Dershowitz has value in a lot of areas. And there are a lot of areas I agree with Alan Dershowitz about certain things, but I still need to bring up Epstein. I need to talk about Epstein because of the implications between, you know, the, the connections, the vast connections between him, him and Epstein that, are, that have still gone pretty unanswered in a, lot of, in a lot of cases and questions about Epstein himself that have gone un, unanswered. And so we said she's going to my producer in fully in text said she's going to be asking about Epstein. And they said, okay, you know, and that wasn't the first time we had said she's going to have to ask about Epstein. This would number of conversations that happened every time they try to book him onto the show. So, you know, I mean, look, during that interview, he says, when I say, did you you got a massage, you admit to getting a massage. He says, no. Well, yeah, I got one from Olga. Right. And then you say, did Jeffrey Epstein kill himself? Well, no. Oh, but yeah, you know, I mean, it's just very <laughs> well, that last point I find very interesting. I hadn't known that that was his stance that he'd gotten to that. It was like, you know, in the middle kind of where we can admit now that, yes, the guards are part of it. And so where's all the accountability for all that? Like, that's such a strange middle ground. You know, I, I that that story is is just left as, you know, the corporate narrative and nothing else happens going forward. It's very strange. Right. And then me saying, you know, did he work for Mossad or the state of Israel? And he's like, mm-hmm. that's ridiculous. They would never hire him. I've been working for the state of Israel for since before you were born. He says, it's like, oh, really? So you are yeah. working with Mossad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. It's, it's just such an interesting situation. You know, I mean, I do wanted to, well, we, if you, we could maybe briefly put any thoughts on, on the interesting situation that's going on right now between, you know, the, the, the Palestinian, the occupied Palestinian situation is really kind of exploding right now, right? I mean, it's just very, it's becoming a multi-front war. And I think that's what yeah. has been, whether the design for, I don't believe Israel wanted this to be the way it is today. And I think that it's kind of showing a, an ebb and flow of the power structures around the world. So I, I wanted your thoughts on that. I know you've been, you had put a couple of tweets out and been covering, uh, you had a good video on al and what happened there. It's kind of shocking to me how this is still being covered, despite how clear like the video and the evidence is, where do you think this is going? Yeah, I mean, now with the Internet, uh, it's a much more difficult to hide uh, any narrative of anything, really, because Mm -hmm. there's video evidence, so much video evidence that comes out. But the difficulty is, is that so many Americans for our entire lives have been told, you know, I stand with Israel. That's it. There's and there's terrorists over there that are trying to get rid of these Jews again. You know, they're trying to be exterminated again. You know, there's this narrative that's been that we've been taught since we were very young. And so it's hard to break those. those narratives. It's hard to break that propaganda that we've been taught since we were very young. And now, though, there's video evidence. Um, the Palestinians have internet. They're able to film. Not very good internet, by the way. It's still 3G. They're not given access to anything higher than that. So it's still really slow. But they do have it. They're able to upload videos. They're able to show what's really going on. And it is, I think, cutting through the narrative that there's this terrorist, these terrorists that it's just an entire population of terrorists living right next door to this Jewish nation that's just trying to exist and not bothering anybody. And they're being eradicated by these terrorist neighbors. And in reality, it's very much the reverse situation that's going on over there is that there that at some point in time, there was a group of people that wanted to uh, create the state of Israel. 
they chose that land. They chose this, their, their, the origin land or the historical land. They had other options, other land in parts of Africa. Quite frankly, I think, why weren't they given Germany, parts of Germany? That would have been more fair um, if you want to do a reparation of some kind. Um, but they chose to go back to that land. There were people living on that land. And those people have been under attack since then to be pushed off that land. That's just the the reality of the situation. Those people, of course, have been fighting back um, some ways more, you know, some ways unfairly, you know, every war, there's unfair fighting, there's fair fighting. So certainly you could always point to certain attacks that have been done that are unfair and that are war crimes of of such or terrorist acts. And then there are others that are really fair. But um, ultimately, it's a, a war between two groups of people where one has been trying to get trying to push one off the land for now over 70 years. Mm -hmm. So um, I think people are starting to see that. The question though is what do we do about it? And I think that's the big, you know, the big overall question with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is uh, what can be done? Um, You know, and I I don't even know the answer to that, quite honestly, I I don't have a solution, but I mean, once, you know, ultimately- situation. I mean, it's- Right, it's in it, right. Go ahead. Well, but at the same time, it's, I understand- you know, to, to declare a nation a state for one group of people, right. which no other nation has done that. So if you say this is only a nation for this one group of people and anybody else who's not this group of people won't have the same sorts of rights or they really maybe should go somewhere else, that in and of itself, I think, is untenable. I don't think that they're going to be able to last. I think Israel's put itself in a precarious position where there, there's just no way that nation can last as it is for a for much for a, maybe 70 more years at most mm-hmm. but i can't imagine it lasting as a jewish only nation um forever i just don't think they're ultimately going to have to become a one state and everybody there is going to have to get equal rights i mean that's just ultimately how it's going to be and i don't know and then the idea that they're not safe anywhere else well you know they're perfectly safe here in america you know jewish people of course there's always racism and attacks and you you know you're going to have that anywhere to some degree but yeah, the situation is very. Um, yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really terrible situation going on over there. Yeah. Well, it's it's like it's like the conversation, you know, the, the the transgender kind of policy politics of focus today. It's the same kind of way concept that when I say it's an impossible situation, that's not to say that I don't have like I agree with everything you said. I think it's very simple actually, and it's very clear how this should be dealt with and what's been going. That's my opinion, but it's impossible because of the politics, right? And to, right. to make it clear, in my opinion, this is where I always take it is. That according to Geneva Conventions, international law, it's an occupied territory. Therefore, by law, they have a right to armed rebellion. You don't need to justify it saying they were fired on so they get to fight back. And they could be fighting with no justification and they're still legally protected because they're an occupied. So why everything else becomes convoluted? It's politics, you know, and then it gets to the point to where we're like, well, it's been, you know, however many years. And so now we can't just go back to day one. Yeah, we can actually, you know, it's like that. It's still an illegal occupation. That's how that's how I view it. Right. Either way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, a lot of people say, well, it's an apartheid state. I don't it really is. fully agree with that. Well, I agree, but I don't agree. It's mm-hmm. it's really more of an it's an it's an it's a separate nation that's being occupied. So you've got Israel and then you've got Palestine and Palestine is under what is very obviously military occupation. When you're there and you right. see it, it's clearly military occupation. It's not fully in a it's not an apartheid situation like South Africa um, because the, the it's the rules that are governing the Palestinians are military orders. They're being, you know, they've got military people patrolling everywhere. 
the orders can change on a dime. Suddenly one day something's allowed, the next day it's not via military order. It's very much a military occupation. Right. And right. they need to end the occupation and give Palestine their country back, or they need to figure out a one-state solution, I suppose. I don't know. It's yeah. But the well, politics do make it very difficult. Yeah. I would just say that, it, you know, it's not on us to sit here and solve this problem on the show. You know, it's, it's impossible. Right. You know? And I, I think that the <laughs> thing is, is that I always come back to all that aside is that people are suffering. You know, these people, right. people on the ground, their families, children, women that have nothing to do with this, that have their opinions. But the fact that this is the, you know, the brunt of it ends up being that, you know, one side or the other are all bad or all good. It's just, it's again, it's politics and it's, it's infuriating to right. see. But I, I see this going to a point now to the to the main point of this kind of shifting power structure, you know, where we see the United States, the government you losing its kind of clout around the world. And Israel has been relying on that for a long time. And I think now we see, you know, recently we see Lebanon, yeah. Syria and Palestine all kind of converging in this in this pushback. So I don't know. I don't know where it's going, but I'm trying to stay hopeful that it will achieve some kind of positive end. Because I personally see Israel, the Israeli government as the provocateur in all of this. But, you know, that that could cause racism. Yeah. So it's hard. <laughs> right. Right. Which is all, you know, and that's and that's we see that even with the trans situation with mm -hmm. really any with covid is that if you're if you're against the particular narrative that has been decided upon, you get smeared mm -hmm. right? you get you get called anti-Semitic if you say the state of Israel is doing all these terrible things. And then it, it's it's as if you're saying Jews are the bad ones and right. they're all doing this horrible, bad thing. And, you know, I don't like Jews or something. That's the that's the one that, you know, that they, they, they turn it into that. Or like if you're right. against the mandates or the or the experiment, you know, the, this rapid experimental vaccine that came out, suddenly you're I hate all vaccines. I mean, you know, right. you're an anti-vaxxer. You don't like vaccines at all. You're anti-science. It's they turn everything, they trans issue. It's now, you, if you just say, look, this is the science, this is the biology of it. We can talk about rights. We can talk about being kind to people. You know, there's other, there's right. ways to approach this, but if you don't approach it exactly the way they want, where you say, no, these are women and that is the end of the situation and they should be able to compete against women in sports and they should be able to, you know, win all these uh, women awards and whatnot, then you're, you're, a, you're a transphobe. You're a terrible human being. You're a bigot. It's the same tactics in every single conversation, right? right. We're talking right. about Zionism, or at least I am specifically, and then the Israeli government and their illegal actions. How in the world right. that gets contorted into you hate Jewish people is just, it's pure ignorance and straight up, it, it's, it's, it's core, it's dishonest. I, I imagine yeah. there are some people out there that may think that we're like wink, wink doing that, which is just ridiculous still. <laughs> but ultimately, you know, it's, it's dishonest. They know they're trying to, you know, at some level, I would say government trying to suppress a conversation and it happens with all yeah. of this or rather drive a certain agenda to the, to the trans conversation. I was going to ask you about that in general. I, I recommend people look at the work you've been doing and, and the tweets you put out. Cause it's, I agree with, you know, it's, it's a, it's a hard stance to take today, but I, I agree, but we have limited time. I would like to get into uh, the COVID-19 conversation because that, yeah. that is kind of coming back to the Hill and, and how that transition went, I do think it's, again, important to reiterate that you were correct in the things that essentially got you driven out of that show, which is frustrating, right? And so since then, we've seen a lot change. I mean, pretty much everything. And and not not only have these narratives been more become more prominent, the, the, I would say the truth, you know, whether myocarditis or the injections aren't stopping transmission or I, I think they're killing people, but it's actually become backed by peer-reviewed science. You've gotten even more high level people, entire health communities, entire health ministers, ministries around the world shutting these things down. So what what is your perception of all this? Like we recently saw this um, 
Neil deGrasse Tyson, Dell Bigtree conversation. If you saw that where he's screaming that the individual science doesn't matter, it's about the consensus, which is, you know, if that was the case, we'd still be using DDT and we'd still be using, you know, all these things from before that were yeah. safe and happy. So I just wanted your thoughts on, on that shift and then where this seems to be going, even though we can prove this stuff today. It's fascinating. You know, the COVID-19 conversation is one that in a lot of ways, we're really lucky that it the 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 truth came out so rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these other conversations, the truth just doesn't come out so rapidly. You know, you have to wait years and decades, even lifetimes before the truth finally comes out with certain narratives that are pushed on us. Um, like climate, for example, we don't I won't know who was right or wrong on this, you know, for years to come. I mean, if they say 15 years, we've only got 15 years left. Well, I got to wait 15 years, right, before I can say, well, you were wrong. I'm still yeah. here. <laughs> it's been 15 years. Right. Or, well, I guess we're dead. I get you right. 15 years. You still have to wait that period of time, right? With COVID, it was so much faster because it was just obvious the vaccines weren't stopping the spread. Um, it, that was really clear really quickly. So in a lot of ways, we got really lucky that Um, If you were on the side that you and I took and some very few others took from the beginning that this is just this is a mess. This isn't going to, you know, and and how could you ever think this would work or um, that we we got proven right pretty quickly. But so but there's still people, of course, holding on. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't want to admit maybe they've gone. They've they behave like they admit it. So they've at least gotten to the point where they're going out. They're not wearing a mask. They're not going to take another shot. They're not going to worry about COVID. They've already had COVID, um, but they're not going to verbally say you were right, but they'll behave like, well, okay, you were right. Maybe they started hanging out with us again Mm -hmm. instead of calling us anti-vaxxers. You know, they're willing to actually, uh, you know, be in the same room, Uh, but it is definitely shifting, and I think it'll it will be only a couple more years before even the people who are completely on one side vocally they will have to admit that they were wrong. Otherwise, people won't take them seriously. The problem is though is that when they're pushed to finally say, "Yeah, I was wrong on that," like Piers Morgan is one who's come out right. saying, "I was wrong." When they do, you know, they won't have any consequences, and that I think is the real the real crime, one of the real, there's many crimes when it comes Mm -hmm. to COVID. You're right, because these vaccines themselves have proven to be harmful, more harmful than they are helpful for most people. I would say for everybody, but that's an, again, as it goes forward, we can flesh this out, but there's peer-reviewed science saying that it's net harm, you know, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, right. The only caveat I'd put is maybe for older groups of people that maybe, but I would have to look deeper into that science for sure. But certainly younger people shouldn't even be taking this stuff and never should have. I never did. Uh, because I was like, there's no way I'm taking that thing, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, just not going to do it. But and I'm glad I didn't. I'm really glad that I was one of the people that said, I'm not putting that into my body. You're not going to convince me to do it. If I have to stay in my house and be a hermit, then so be it. There was one point where the Hill wanted me to come to the studio, but they needed to see, you know, they needed to know I was vaccinated. And I just said, um, well, then I'm not coming in. I mean, mm-hmm. it's that they were so, they were like, well, but you've been vaccinated, right? Even though they saw what I was saying on air. Uh-huh. And I'm sitting there thinking, how could you think I was after everything I was saying on air? I mean, I don't know why anybody would make that assumption, but I never answered. You know, I never said, because it's really nobody's business. Right. Um, and so I just, but I said, you're not going to see me. I'm not coming in. So I, ne- I didn't go in until they finally dropped the mandate. But yeah, I think a lot of the, the big thing, one of the, one of the big casualties of it is all the people who've been smeared as anti-vaxxer and continue to get smeared as that. 
you know, continue to be labeled this thing that even though others have now admitted we're right, they're still giving us the label than right. the of anti-vaxxer. So many people who there's took the a shots too. casualty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People who took the shots were Silly. being called anti-vaxxer. Makes no sense. Yeah. So I don't know where we're headed with it. But one thing that really bothers me is the lack of accountability for the people who pushed so hard, like Piers Morgan right. or others, many, many others. You know, they, they're just going to go on and continue with their careers and be fine. And the I rest would, of us are labeled. I would even argue that they would get like you can point to examples like uh, um, Maddow and Russiagate or even before that with the Iraq <laughs> war. These people that pull that toe the line aggressively and then be, are aggressively proven to be wrong. They somehow keep going up and the ones that even though got proven right end up still being. It shows you what the real intention are, I would argue, of the, the, the main structure. But what your to your point, though, I, I, I admit I did a segment on Piers Morgan specifically, and I agree that one, at least it appears they're admitting something. And I think it's this half hearted kind of like Piers Morgan, to be quite honest, if you sum up his argument, it, it's not that he was wrong. It's that is that he trusted the wrong people or rather that like it's it's like a half answer. And the point was that people like Dr. Bhakti and plenty of other very highly regarded experts were saying this in March. I still reference March 2020 in his interview on Fox News, where he said, if you take these, you're taking them to your doom. He wasn't guessing, right? He had the data. And I saw that I was making the same arguments all the way back then, as many of us were. Yeah. And so it's crazy for them to come out now and act like that. It, th this is my point, is that a lot of them aren't saying that they were wrong. They're saying that they were right in the beginning. But yeah, what yeah. you were saying has now become the reality because of X, Y, and Z. So we're both right. That's not true, right? I mean, that's just, a, right. they're trying to bend it to work their way in. And I think that's a game. Right. I think it's because people like us reached more people than they ever thought during this position. And they ultimately are trying to kind of warp it back in. You know, that's my opinion. But what we're at now, I think you can prove unequivocally that these things, you know, as we know, all the big conversations, they don't stop transmission. They never did. And I think you prove that from the original information. And now with the bivalent and the information going forward, I'm terrified about where this goes. We only have a few minutes left. I wanted to ask you about, you know, where where you think this is going in regard to with the consensus mindset, which is mind blowing, seeing as how the consensus was proven to be wrong. And they're still kind of arguing that's where this goes. The conversation of where it goes with mRNA platforms and, and the new the next generation concept of vaccines, which many may still believe is like seemingly or they argue is somehow a fake story. But this is the concept of like self-spreading Johns Hopkins has talked about this self-spreading vaccines and the concept of, you know, putting something out there that we don't have to agree to. It just takes care of it for yeah. us. You know, what are your thoughts on where this all seems to be going with the very same people that just got caught lying to us still leading the charge, you know? Yeah, that, that's what's really, really scary about it is that they're allowed to just keep on going. And yeah, I mean, they're, they're, that's like not really news, I, I suppose, that they're trying to poison us, right? They've been trying to poison us with a variety of things in our food supply and our water for decades now. So, of course, they're going to try to poison the air where we're all now vaccinated without getting vaccinated, apparently. Uh, but it's a matter of people opening up their eyes to it. The consensus part is going to be really, really tricky. They figured out through this experiment of COVID, of the pandemic, I should say, that um, specifically the pandemic, that we Americans are not as likely to go fall in line as they thought or hoped. Right. Right. We saw other countries fall in line really well, uh, like Australia. A lot of them just kind of went right along with it. Like, OK, we saw this happen in New Zealand. We saw, of course, the Asian nations fall in line. Usually they're they're more um, used to sort of being told by their government what to do and being and, and needing to do it. 
But America was one that we just weren't really tolerant of that. There were some communities, but a lot of communities were not willing to go with that. So they're trying to figure out a rapid way to get us to fall in line if um, the pandemic tactics they used aren't going to work. And I think that is where we get into the rollout of the CBDCs. This is Mm -hmm. where I really think that the rollout of that central bank digital currency is going to be key because what they discovered during the Canadian trucker convoy was that if you can control the money, you can break up this dissent and you can get people to go home and to go away. So you've got to be able to control their livelihood in some way. And they did that somewhat during the pandemic, right? They tried to tell us, if you do this thing, you're going to die. That's your livelihood. Um, But it didn't, but it fell on a lot of deaf ears for a lot of people. We just said, yeah, I'm not buying it, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, but they will find a way to control us. There are, there are looking for ways to get, if they can't manufacture that consent through fear, they can they can push the, they, well, they can use another form of fear. And that is, well, then I'm just going to cut off your money supply because you're somebody that we believe you're a terrorist. They're going to use that word a lot. They've been using that word a lot to describe parents, to describe the truckers, to describe mm-hmm. the people at January 6th, right? They're, they're blanket labeling anybody terrorist that has a differing opinion. And then they'll use that terrorist label to cut you off from your money supply, which everybody's very afraid of. Mm-hmm. And if they can do that, then they can, can then they can get that consent. So I do think that they are looking to control us. And I think it's happening really rapidly and right in front of our faces. And the scariest part about it really is that so many people are going along with it. Right. I and mean, I think that's the scariest part. They can only do what we can go along with and what we're okay with. But if the people push back and say no, like we did as Americans during the pandemic, then they can't really do it. They were unsuccessful here in the U.S., getting us to go along with their pandemic um, agenda. Large, you know, they were largely successful, but also largely unsuccessful. Yeah. So the question is, what are they going to do next to try to get us to, to make that much more successful? Yeah, I agree. And I, I we, with the only a few minutes left, I wanted to, you know, take it in one or two directions. I mean, I, like I said, before we got onto the show, I feel like there is an overlap to a lot of these conversations, like more so than just politically connected. I think there's more going on behind a lot of this. And it takes my mind to you mentioned the background problem. Ohio was an interesting conversation. PFAS, dioxins, all these are suddenly coming up as something that has seemingly been a problem behind the scenes that we haven't been told about for a long time. And then the other way I see this overlapping is the division tactic of, you know, the the great reset and where this seems to be going. And I think there's an overlap with the transgender movement with this conversation of the technocratic transhumanist kind of direction. That's my personal opinion. So I don't know, you're leaving thoughts with one of those conversations and we hopefully can have you back on the show and dive deeper. Yeah. You know, with like the trans conversation, for example, people just keep pointing at it as a culture war issue. And it's really beyond that. It's more than that. Yeah. Getting people to deny science. If you could get people to deny science at a very basic level of something we're taught we don't even really need to be taught that there's a men and there's women, right? That's something as a child. And then as an adult, you just observe, you don't even need to be taught this in a book. This is like very basic biology. Uh, To get us to try to deny that is, it is, it's a, it's a grooming mechanism to get us to then go along with anything they tell us that needs to be, that they want us to believe. So it is a very, uh, and there's many layers to that discussion for sure, but it is not just about culture like we've seen in the in the past with certain other debates, but this is about getting that consent, manufacturing that consent to deny certain truths that are so fundamentally basic. And if they could get us on that, then they can get us on anything. 
And that is where uh, I think that's why they're using that particular issue much at the much at the demise of, of you know, just trans people that just want to live their normal lives and they just want to be left alone. And they've right. been living their normal lives for years and suddenly they're in the spotlight. And many of them don't want to be. And they're, you know, in the middle of this tug of war and it's really unfair to them. And it's because they're trying to use these. Um, yeah, it's really it's it's really it's scary to me everything that's going on and I can't even quite fully wrap my mind around how quickly they're doing this to us and to what the end goal actually, I mean, I know the end goal is to control us ultimately, but I think they're, what I'm trying to wrap my mind around is how fast it seems to be happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's kind of staggering. And I think that everybody's beginning to see that in a, like more than I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I think that's one of the reasons why this is seemingly so ham-fisted and rushed. And, you know, you're yes. right, it's one after another very quickly and people are just losing themselves in this. And I think that's why your work and people's work out there is important. You know, people have a place to go to find some rational discussion. So th- thank you for joining me today, Kim. And I hope we can connect again and, and go deeper. And I hope you keep up your work. So thank you for being here. Anything else you want to leave you. us with on the way out? Nope, that's it. You know, I'm just, I'm on Rumble every day. I do my show Monday through Friday on Rumble at 6 p.m. Um, Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. And, you know, just trying to keep, trying to keep, try sanity and mm. <laughs> and facts given, delivering to the people. Right, right. Well, thank you for being here. And as always, thank everybody you. out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.